Good morning, church. It is good to be here with you guys this morning. If I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I get to serve here as family pastor. I'm excited to continue our series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you want to, if you have a copy of scripture, you can turn there with me now to Ephesians chapter six. This is our second to last week in the book of Ephesians, a journey that we began all the way back. I think like in October or November. So it's been a long time uh, that we've been in Ephesians together, and Justin's going to wrap up the series uh, next week uh, with uh, the second half of chapter 6. And then, uh, but today we're looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And in our section for today, well, Paul, Paul's going to continue on the same trend that he's been uh, working through uh, for the last uh, couple chapters. Paul's going to continue to apply the gospel of God's free grace through King Jesus, to every aspect of our lives. So, if you remember, uh, in the first, um, first half of this letter, chapters 1 through 3, what we saw uh, is uh, Paul tell us who we are in Christ. And that is our identity in light of the glorious and finished work of Jesus, who has resurrected dead men and women like you and me, and raised us to new life with Him, as He reigns triumphantly over the whole cosmos. But now in the second half of this letter, uh, after there's like that hinge verse that we saw in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, where it says, therefore, in light of this gospel, therefore, now live in this way. In the second half of the letter, we're seeing him take that gospel uh, and show us how it applies to every nook and cranny of our lives, every relationship, every, uh, every aspect of the church's life uh, together. And so this week, Paul is going to take two, a couple more types of relationships. We're going to look at, at four different groups of people uh, and, and, and paint a picture for us how our relationships should be utterly transformed by His lavish grace toward us. Okay, so let's uh, read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 together. And if you would, let's, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We do this every once in a while. I'll read it as, as you, uh, as you hear, hear God's Word uh, read over you. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Whoops. Uh, slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Let me, uh, let me pray for us uh, before we unpack this text together. Father, you are a good and a gracious king. So teach us, to, even now, over the next half hour or so, what it looks like to live and pursue relationships under that gracious reign. Uh, to bring all the hurt, all the baggage, all the, all, all the, uh, the sorrow that can be produced in, in relationships, in broken relationships, and lay it at your feet. Uh, come to you with humble, repentant hearts, wanting to grow, wanting to live in the life and the freedom that your grace offers us. Teach us to do that. And we know that you can do that even now in, in our seats. You can change us by the power of your spirit through the gospel. So would you do that 
uh, mightily now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, have you noticed uh, that often the hurt and the damage of our sin is most powerfully felt by the people who are closest to us? Often the hurt and the damage of our own sin, of your own sin, is most powerfully felt by the people that are closest to you. Often it is the people who are closest to us who are the hardest to love and who are the easiest to hurt. I know this is definitely true in my life. I can, see, uh, I can pull myself together uh, for 20 or 30 minutes while I go in the grocery store and I can be like a really nice person to uh, all the people that cut me off and with their carts or the, with the checkout clerk who's just being kind of a little bit obnoxious. Like, I can, I can be nice to them, you know, that, because that person doesn't really impact my life. Uh, I'm only going to have this inconvenience for a few minutes of the day so I can kind of put a smile on or whatever. Uh, they're not that close to me, so their sin against me, their, uh, their bad attitude or their snarky comments, their whatever, their shortness, their biting sarcasm, it doesn't in, in, affect me that much. So I can, uh, so can kind of uh, put up with it. But then on the other hand, though, uh, their mistakes and their flaws don't impact me that much. But on the other hand, let's say I leave, that, I leave the store uh, and I come to the church where I work and, uh, and I start interacting with my coworkers, the other staff of the church, in that same way. So I start treating people uh, at the church the same way that the clerk or the, the, the annoying shopper uh, at Fred Meyer's treated me. Or I, I was short with them, or I started using biting sarcasm, or I was frustrated uh, verbally with them, right? Well, that would have a lot bigger impact on them, right? I work with them. I see them multiple times a week. I, uh, if, I, if I start being a jerk, it's going to make my life and their life, a big part of my life and their life, a lot less comfortable, a lot more frustrating. Um, uh, then I uh, think uh, and, um, it's going to make it a lot more frustrating, a lot more difficult. And then even more so, if I take that bad attitude and that biting sarcasm and that, uh, that, that frustration into uh, home, into, and then it affects my, uh, the way I treat Monica and the way I treat my boys, right? The, uh, my, our sin, uh, the, da- the hurt and damage of our sin is most powerfully felt by the people closest to us. Or think about it this way. Think of the, the people in your life who have hurt you the most or who have negatively impacted you the most. More than likely, it's not a checkout clerk at the, at the grocery store or some random person that you get angry at driving on the highway, right? More than likely, it's people who, the, the people who have negatively impacted your life the most, who have hurt you the most, are, um, are someone that you have a close relationship with. It's probably a family member. It's probably a close friend or a close coworker. Uh, and then think about it from the other side. The people who you have hurt most deeply with your failures, with your flaws, with your, uh, with your sin. It's, uh, those, are, those people are likely family members, close friends, or close coworkers. The people closest to us. It's the people who are closest to us, who are the hardest to love and the easiest to hurt. And so for this reason, we need to pay special attention to Scripture's words here concerning the relationships within our homes and within, those closest, within our closest spheres of influence. Because as, as followers of Jesus, as, as gospel people here at Peninsula Grace, uh, we need to ask, how does the message of Jesus impact the way I see and relate to those closest to me? And what we're going to see as we unpack these verses is that rather than the pain Rather than the dysfunction, rather than the abuse, the neglect, or the conflict that can so often define 
our family relationships or our relationships in the, in the workplace. Rather than all that, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection compels us to see our relationships under the gracious reign of Jesus. In other words, and here's kind of like our working principle that we're going to see, the, through, uh, see this text through. Paul wants us to reimagine and to reorient our relationships in light of the gracious and supreme reign of Jesus. Our relationships with our children, our relationships with our parents, our relationships with our employers, our relationships with our employees, our coworkers, they need to be transformed in light of the Lord, Lordship of Jesus. And that's crucial because that's a theme that we see all throughout these nine verses. We're just going to briefly, I want us to see how we see this unifying theme of the Lordship of Jesus over our relationships in these, in these first nine, nine verses. We're going to briefly skim over these uh, to see the same, and then we'll go back and, un, and unpack them in a little bit more depth. So verse 1, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Did that, did that stand out to you? And that, in, in other words, when we, we read that, we read the word master or king. We could, that's the image that's meant to invoke. And then verse 4, skipping now, and he says, Fathers, bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So in some way, Christ's kingship, his master over our lives, his reign, is to shape the, the way that we parents parent our kids. And then, uh, then verses 7 and 8, when he's addressing slaves or, or workers, he says, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And then finally, uh, verse 9, it says, he says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master or Lord, that's uh, the same uh, original Greek word there, the, both their master and yours is in heaven. And here, uh, and that is the same word there. So, um, and this isn't really a new idea it's that in, in Ephesians. It's actually one that Paul has been emphasizing all throughout the letter. That all of our life, all of our relationships, all of our, all the stuff in our day-to-day -day nooks and crannies, nitty-gritty of life, is to be viewed under the fact that Jesus is reigning supreme as Lord overall. So he began, he began all the way back in, at the end of chapter 1 with this prayer. Let's, let's remind ourselves of this prayer. He says, I pray, this is Paul writing for the Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. And then he goes on to unpack that power in verses 20 through 23. He says, He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead, by seating him at his right hand in the heavens. That, in other words, conveying on him authority, regal, royal authority and status. Uh, and, then, uh, and then verse 21, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he subjected, that is God the Father, subjected everything under Jesus' feet and appointed him as head or authority over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So this reigning, victorious, conquering king has, who has defeated death itself and is now exercising perfect submission over every aspect of the universe. That's the image that Paul wants to impress on us. That's the image of Jesus that Paul wants to impress on you this morning. And that's the image of Jesus that, that, that we see shot through this entire letter and even in our passage this morning. So now when we come to Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9, and we read about the lordship of Jesus, to, to, to obey our, our parents in the Lord, to, to raise our kids in the Lord, to to serve as to the Lord and knowing that our Master, that our Lord is in heaven. Um, as we read that, uh, uh, 
that's the image. This is the image that we should have in our heads every time we see this word Lord, this reigning supreme master of the cosmos. And that's the big working principle, the, the lens through which we're going to see this whole passage. And so now let's, let's go through and, and, and look at each four of these, these groups of people that Paul addresses. Children, parents, slaves, and masters. And we'll try to pull out some applications for, application for our lives. So first he addresses children. Uh, they're the first ones mentioned. That's kind of interesting. Uh, after, after he addresses uh, uh, husbands and wives, he moves to children. And he says, obey in the Lord. So if you're a child in the room, you're under 18... Uh, this is explicit. Obviously, the principles are, are here are applicable to all children, no matter how old we are. Uh, but particularly, if you're under the in the household of your parents, this is explicitly directed to you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, it's almost a universal rule in the universe that as kids we chafe under our parents' authority. Right? Thank you, Captain Obvious. I, I rebelled against my parents. My parents rebelled against yours. Sorry for calling you guys out. Uh, and, uh, and my kids rebel against uh, my, my parents. Or my, my parents rebel against my parents. My kids rebel against me as well. Right? I, I started dating Monica when I was 17 years old, still living in, under my parents' roof. And as 17-year-olds, we had a curfew. And I chafed against that curfew. Right? I wanted to be out with my girlfriend at, at unreasonable hours. And I did, not al- I did not like that curfew. I did not a- always abide by that curfew, right? Kids buck against authority. It is in our nature uh, to do that. And some of you listening, some of you kids listening may have already turned your brain off, right? You've tuned me out. You think, duh, I rebel against my parents' authority. You- have you seen the restrictions and the rules that they have put on me, right? Our parents' authority sometimes feels unfair, unju- unjust, or illogical. Paul tells us, Kids, obey in the Lord. That is, our parents, we, we are to obey our parents as if they were Jesus himself. For Jesus himself, the master of the universe, has himself given our parents the responsibility to lead and to care for you. Now, that doesn't mean we do anything unbiblical or unsafe. We just heard a, a story earlier about the the brother from the Dominican Republic whose parents were witch doctors who, who kicked him out of the house uh, for following Jesus, right? We don't, got, Paul's not calling, him, uh, calling us to, do, to, to, to live or just tolerate or put up with abuse or, or anything like that. Uh, sometimes our parents will ask us to do something unbiblical or unsafe, and, and we, uh, uh, we can, for our own safety, uh, reject that. But in the vast majority of instances, we are called to follow Jesus and do the hardest thing possible. And that is to obey authority that we disagree with. At the end of the day, our parents, they don't give an account to you. They give an account to Jesus himself. And so we can trust Jesus with our obedience. On the other hand, some of you kids, uh, some of, I, feel, I still feel like I'm a kid sometimes, so some of you kids, you. Um, <laughs> Uh, some of us are thinking, well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know I disobey in theory. I, I disagree with my parents sometimes. But in reality, like, I'm a, I'm a pretty good kid. I do most of my chores. I don't yell at my parents. I don't really break curfew. If that's you, I want you to see that this passage pushes us to something even better than just outward obedience. It pushes us to something even more beautiful, even more filled with joy than merely outward obedience. To obey our parents in the Lord means that we cultivate a heart-level 
reverence and honor and respect for our parents. So how are you doing at that? How are you doing at cultivating a heart level honor, respect, and reverence for your parents? Maybe you don't have a uh, bad habit of arguing all the time with your parents or talking back, but how are you at proactively thanking and honoring your parents with your words? Maybe you don't yell at your parents you know, blatantly very often, but what thoughts do you harbor against them in the heat of the moment? What unkind feelings run through your heart? Because the principle here is this. By expressing heart-level submission to the authority of our parents, we demonstrate heart-level submission to the authority of Jesus. And here's the thing. We can't demonstrate heart-level submission to the authority of Jesus without expressing heart-level submission to the, to the authority of our, of our parents. And we actually see this principle worked out in verse 3. Did you notice that promise that he gives uh, uh, to kids? He says, honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. So Paul says we, we express heart-level obedience to our parents even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's unjust, by clinging to this promise. Now I want to clarify, this is not a specific promise that everyone who has a good relationship with their parents is going to live into their 90s, right? We know, we, we know tragically uh, stories of people who, who die tragically young who have a good relationship with their parents. But this is a real promise for us to hold on to because, and we must remember its, it's original context, okay? So this, this, this is one of the famous Ten Commandments. It was given to the people of Israel 1,500 years before, um, before Paul wrote Ephesians, 3,500 years before now. And it was given as God's people are, are, God's newly formed nation, the nation of Israel, is about to enter into the land that they've been promised. And these commands were designed to outline the new way of life for the nation. They were to show off, by living according to these commands, Israel was to show off the beauty of God's design and to show off the goodness of life under his reign as he intended us to live. So it's a collective promise for the whole nation, right? It's, uh, if, if you as a nation, God is saying, if you as a nation develop a culture in which children honor their parents, it's going to go well for you as a nation. You're, you're going to prosper because that's how I've designed society and, and, and your nation to live. So, uh, and you, uh, you will, if you will have a healthy culture, you will have a healthy culture and enjoy my blessing because that's how I've designed you to live. You will endure and enjoy the promised land that I'm giving to you. So it's a general promise, right? We know it's not specific. But it's also a promise that's wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus' grace itself. Because Jesus, and listen to this, if you're chafing under the authority of your parents, Jesus is the ultimate and submitter. He was the great obeyer. He lowered himself and obeyed his earthly parents, Luke writes. He says uh, Jesus obeyed his parents in everything. But even more so, Jesus obeyed and followed the will of his heavenly Father to the point of death. And then after satisfying the, the righteous and just requirement of God, he was raised to life again. And as we saw in Ephesians 1, he's reigning supremely, enjoying a perfect relationship with his Father. And so now... We can obey our parents from the heart, trusting in what Jesus has done for us, because that's the kind of king, that's the kind of Messiah we live, one who obeys unto death. And so sometimes it feels like death to obey, but we can look to Jesus who went ahead of us and trust what he has done for us. All right, but he doesn't stop with kids. He goes on to parents. We knew he wouldn't leave us off the hook. Uh, he says to parents, train your kids in the Lord. Bring your kids up in the Lord. 
and specifically only addresses fathers. I don't know if that, that you notice that. I think there's great reason for that. There's a particular weight that, that we as fathers bring to the table in our, in our parenting, and there's a particular um, uh, emphasis here uh, that Paul wants to convey to fathers. But also, but mothers, I think you're in view here too. There's something that all parents can gain uh, from these commands. But he only gives two commands. Right? Did you know he, he's, all of the parenting advice that he gives in this, in this letter is limited to one sentence. And he gives one uh, positive, one negative command and one negative. He says, negatively, don't stir up anger. Positively, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And we have to read this and ask, why just these two commands? Like, if you're going to limit all your parenting counsel to one sentence, why phrase it like this? Why, why are these so important to you? And I think John Piper, he gives a great answer to that question. And so we're, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs right out of a, a book that he wrote. Um, and uh, because he says it much clearer than I could. So uh, this is what uh, Piper writes. He says, first, Paul warns against provoking anger because anger is the most common emotion of the sinful heart when it confronts authority. Dad embodies authority. Apart from Christ, the child embodies self-will. And when the two meet, anger flares. A two-year-old throws a tantrum and a teenager slams the door or worse. So I think Paul is saying that there is going to be plenty of anger with the best of parenting. So make every effort without compromising your authority or truth or holiness to avoid provoking anger. The second reason Paul may focus on not provoking anger in our children is because this emotion devours almost all other good emotions. Anger deadens the soul. It numbs the heart to joy and gratitude and hope and tenderness and compassion and kindness. So Paul knows that if a dad can help a child not to be overcome by anger, he may unlock his heart to a dozen other precious emotions that make worship possible and make relationship sweet. Anyone who's been a parent for more than an hour knows that there's going to be a lot of anger in parenting, right? Our kids will chafe under our uh, will chafe and rebel. They will be frustrated by our responses, even if it's just, I want to nurse right now, or I don't want my diaper changed right now, or maybe it's, I want to be able to go to a friend's house and, and you're not letting me. Like, there's going to be anger in parenting. There's going to be plenty of it. Uh, but knowing this, we should want to avoid pushing our kids to anger, uh, to the point of anger, any more than we have to for their own good. And Paul tells us uh, uh, not to do that so that, for two reasons, uh, so that, our kids will learn a healthy, positive view of authority, especially the authority of Jesus. But then also, so that we as moms and dads can foster a deep connection with our kids that is only possible in the absence of anger. Because as, as we just read, anger deadens the soul. Now, this doesn't mean, parents, that we need to feel guilty every time we tell our kids to do something and they, get anger, they respond in anger, right? Sometimes it's appropriate uh, sometimes, I mean, we can't control another person's emotions or responses to us. But we should take stock of the effects uh, that our actions, our comments, our commands have on our kids when they respond in anger. And so, in my, and in my experience, there's kind of three broad tendencies that we as parents can have that breed anger. And, I, and I'm going to share these confessing simultaneously as I share, confessing to be guilty of all three of these tendencies. And this is something that I've observed in my own parenting, which has only lasted about four years, uh, but, uh, but also my, uh, just my observations of parents, reading and reflecting on my own childhood and reflecting on parenting itself. So 
There are three common tendencies that we as parents need to be aware of that breed anger in our kids. And the first one is inconsistency. And by inconsistency, I mean the waffling back and forth that we so often do as parents between being strict enforcers of the rules and being lax or failing to follow up, right? And this is so tricky because often I justify my inconsistency and in discipline as telling myself, well, I'm going to choose to show them grace like at this moment, right? They've had a long day or... I just got home, and I don't want my first interaction to, uh, with them to be one of discipline. So I'm going to you know, let it slide or something like that. But what I found is that this is a total misunderstanding. Firstly, of, it misunderstands grace. Right? Discipline is actually a good, consistent, firm discipline is actually a good gift to our, to our kids. It's, it's uh, something that they need. But then secondly, also, being inconsistent doesn't actually create the culture of grace that we think it does. It actually creates a culture of unpredictability and instability. And we know that even as adults, like, there's nothing more anxiety-inducing, there's nothing more anger-provoking than instability and inconsistency. We know that in, or just in our world or, uh, or around it. We know that from our own experience as adults, that we hate inconsistency and unpredictability. And so our children should be able to trust that when we say we're going to do something, we do it. And in trusting that, they will actually find joy in life. Secondly, this, so the second uh, uh, pa pattern that breeds anger is passivity. Adam Griffin, who's a pastor in Texas, he's a former family pastor, he said, um, often we provoke our children to anger more by what we fail to do than what we do to them. We provoke our children to anger more by what we fail to do than by what, by, uh, what we fail to do to them. And some of you right now are like the heartstring, or as you think about your own childhood, the heartstrings are being pulled here. As image bearers of God, our kids are designed to and they crave and need attention and affirmation from us as parents. They were designed to receive those things as pointers to their true father. father. But by failing to, to stick our necks out as dads, by, by hesitating to lead, by neglecting to intentionally engage in our kids' world, whether it's Legos or whether it's the homecoming dress or whatever, uh, by, by neglecting to intentionally engage in their world, by resigning to passivity, we so often fuel resentment in our kids that will bubble out in damaging ways. And so one practical tool I've, I've had to, to, to remember is that when I come home from work in the evening, uh, when I pull in the driveway, I'm not clocking out. Like, I'm not done for the day. Actually, my real work is just beginning. I'm actually clocking in. Uh, when, I, when I walk in the door, uh, we can be on. We can be engaged. We can be present. We can be checked in, not checked out. And then finally, uh, so inconsistency, passivity, and then finally, fearful control. Fearful control. Uh, we provoke anger through our children through fearful control. And this looks a lot of different ways for a lot of different parents. Out of fear, out of, fear of what other people think about us. Parents, uh, anybody guilty of ever thinking, of worrying about what other people think about us and having that affect our, our kids? Out of fear of what other people think about us, we're harsh with our kids, we keep them on a short leash or whatever. Out of fear of what could happen to them, we're overbearing and, and the helicopter parents. Uh, we're never, never letting them uh, take risks or do, do things dangerous, that are dangerous. Out of fear that they won't be successful in life, we push them too hard academically or in a sport. We set unrealistic expectations that stoke the internal coals of fiery resentment toward authority. So just think back on your own parenting this week even. Like where has fear 
uh, where's your own fear pushing your kids toward their unnecessary anger? And again, I'm, as I'm preaching, I'm confessing all, to all three of these things. I've, I've struggled with all of these. But here's the thing. Jesus' gracious mastery over all things invites us to do the hard thing pressing into consistency, pressing into being intentional with our kids, and, 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 and pressing into to exercise con- control and, and leadership, not out of fear, but out of a, a sense of, like, this is what God has given me and entrusted me uh, to do. He has asked me to do this thing uh, so I can do it. So we can do that uh, by trusting in him. Okay, so we've seen is Paul's words to children and then to parents. And then finally, verse 5, Paul turns to, Slaves or workers. And a couple things to know, if you, as we read, you saw that word slaves, obey your masters, or some translations say bond servants, some, uh, um, some translations say household servants. A couple of things to know um, at the outset that as Americans, when we uh, think of slavery, it's almost impossible not to think of the race-based chattel slavery of the American South in the 17th to 18th centuries that we're all familiar with. But that is not the kind of slavery that Paul is addressing here. Uh, slavery is horrible. Sl- slavery of, of any kind is horrible, and it's a product of the fall, but not all slavery is the same. It's not all created equal. So in first century Rome, slavery was not limited to one race. Uh, it was a uh, universal blessing that anybody could, in- could enjoy. Uh, second, uh, slavery often functioned like a, a, like a bankru- bankruptcy safety net for the society. So it was definitely flawed and, and broken, but it was, uh, it was like an ancient broken welfare system. And then thirdly, many slaves lived relatively comfortable lives, right? It was, they exercised a significant amount of freedom and latitude, and they often had, many slaves had good education and could eventually gain their freedom. So it wasn't lifelong imprisonment like, we're, like what we're used to thinking about. So instead of thinking of plantation in South Carolina, it might be better for us to think about Paul's words here to slaves and masters as wisdom for our modern-day relationship between an employer and employee, uh, like the boss-worker relationship, okay? And this is, this is significant because outside of our families, the people that we work with are some of the closest people to us. They are the people that we spend the most amount of time with, and, in many, and we share many of the most important aspects of our lives. Like it's tied to our employment. So, and in, in, in Paul's day, many slaves, many of these household servants would have lived in, would have been considered part of the household of, of the master. So, uh, so it's natural for Paul to go here. And we have to ask, how does the supreme lordship of Jesus impact our relationship with our bosses? Well, Paul lays out three things in verses uh, 5 through 8. He says, firstly, workers are to work in the right way. That is, with integrity. Not as people pleasers, did you see? Not as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Even in the first century, they had goody two-shoes, right? And, um, but we're not to be that. Christians, as Christians, our coworkers, our bosses should know that we're going to work hard regardless of who's watching or even if no one will ever know how hard we're working. So if we're given a little bit of extra freedom or flexibility in our work, if we're uh, given a project or an assignment with less direct oversight, does your posture change? Do you find yourself less motivated to do your best? As Christians, we work in the right way with integrity. Secondly, though we work... Uh, in the right way, for the right master. Um, What allows us to work hard, no matter who's watching? Well, it's knowing that uh, before our boss has asked us to work, Jesus himself has commissioned you to work hard. And so we work as to the Lord. Did you see that? Uh, Slaves, obey your masters, uh, your human masters, as you would Christ. 
Don't, uh, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Remember that Christ is the king of the universe and his hand governs every corner of the globe. We work as to the Lord because God cares deeply about your work. He is deeply invested in your work, uh, no matter your trade and no matter your boss. So uh, Abraham Kuyper in the early 20th century said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And that means whether you're a nurse, whether you're a plumber, whether you're a builder, a teacher, a waitress, a first responder, you work in IT, the service or the product uh, that you contribute to for the sake of human flourishing, it will have eternal consequences. And, and Jesus is, invested in the, is more invested in the excellence of your work than your boss or your supervisor. So we go hard after our jobs knowing that he takes great pleasure in your hard work. And then, uh, so we work for the right, we work in the right way, we work for the right master, and we work for the right reward. And uh, knowing that, in verse, uh, verse 8, he says, uh, uh, knowing, uh, knowing that uh, whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. That is the good work that you do, no matter your trade, wherever you find yourself working, like, it will have eternal consequences. Jesus, no matter who else knows it, Jesus knows the work that you do. And even if your boss overlooks you, even if your, all your coworkers forget or ignore or have no idea what all the hard work that you're doing behind the scenes, Jesus will never forget, and he knows. And it will have eternal consequences. So we work in the right way for the right master and for the right reward. Okay, so children, then parents, then, then slaves and workers, and now finally... Verse 9, he comes to masters and employers. Uh, uh, he says, masters are to work in the same way. We're to treat our, our workers, our slaves, in the same way. That is, we work, whether you're a manager, a supervisor, an administrator, a business owner, a CEO, whatever, we work in, in the same way that the people who work for us are called to work. We work for the pleasure and the delight of God himself. And to sum up, kind of sum up what his, his teaching in this verse, we are to lead, you are to lead, boss or supervisor or, or owner, you are to lead in the Lord by motivating with humility, not threats. You are to lead uh, in the Lord by motivating with humility, not threats. And uh, that's what he says uh, at, 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 in verse 9. He says, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them. And to the ancient world, this would have been an almost unthinkable idea, right? Threatening violence was a go-to move for masters. But slaves, but, but Paul says that if the crucified Lord of the universe has shown grace to sinners like you and me, then violence, then threats, then ultimatums or manipulation, they have no place in our workplace, in our work, in our work life, because that's not how our master has led us. So we don't lead others that way either. And then he says, Remember, you, have, you both have the same master, and with him there is no favoritism. That is, Jesus is not impressed by our work status or by us being a boss or a supervisor. And he will not hold you to a lesser standard because of your increased stress level or responsibility. Do, do we ever use that as an excuse? Well, I've just got so much on my plate. I've just got the day-to-day the -day grind and anxiety of leading this department or leading this, this company or whatever. And so, 
so yeah, I should be entitled to being able to treat people uh, poorly, right? But Jesus says, I'm not impressed by that. You serve the same master as everyone else. And instead, the gospel casts a compelling composite of a crucified king who stooped low to serve those who followed him. And if we have been treated like this, how much more can we lower ourselves for the people who work under us? All right, now, as, so we've, we've hit all four of those, these relationships, uh, children, parents, slaves, and masters. And now as we close, I want to acknowledge like, that all four of these relationships, all four of these groups, of these living, living this out in all four of these realms that we've talked about, it can be extremely messy when we try to apply this to the real world. Right? Some of us have bosses and coworkers who are terribly difficult to work for, and they have been for years. Some of us have parents who have let us down tragically. Some of us have um, kids who have caused us deep, deep pain. Some of us are trying to parent by ourselves. So let me just encourage you that Jesus' reign is good news for relationships that have been hurt by our sin and the sin of others. We fail, you and I are going to fail, and we live, uh, and we will be failed by others. But there was one obedient child. There was one perfect father. There was one humble servant and worker of all. There was one Lord who now reigns justly and kindly over all. Yet this perfect one, he was scorned and he was beaten. He suffered death on a cross, bearing all the consequences for your sins, all the, all the ways that you've hurt those closest to you. He bore that on the cross. And all the heartache that have been caused, by, caused to you by the sins of others, he took that to the cross. The faithful one was substituted for the unfaithful. And so let's look to him as we try to love those who are closest to us. And let me pray for us. Father, we confess. Uh, that as we think about our, those closest to us, as we think about our children, as we think about our parents, as we think about our, our, our co-workers, our bosses, and those who work under us, Lord, we confess that we have not loved as we have ought to love. We have not led, we have not served, we have not obeyed as we have ought to. We have not worked hard enough. We confess. But Lord, would you, in your tender kindness, as king of the cosmos, would you, by the power of your Spirit, apply the goodness of your gospel to our failings and to our weakness? Would you restore what's been broken by our sin, by the sin of others? Would you teach us to, to serve one another humbly and compassionately uh, and faithfully and diligently as we look to the one who died in our place, who faithfully obeyed to the end, who served humbly all for all, and then was raised to a newness of life and given victory over death itself, would we find new life in his life as, as we seek to love others well? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.